Okay, on page 78, reading from Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put the ark in the ark, the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with a cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony, which I will give you. There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Make a table of acacia wood two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also make around it a rim of handbreadth wide and put a gold molding on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold and carry the table with them. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. Make a lampstand of pure gold and hammer it out, base and shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms should be one piece with it. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lamp stand. And on the lamp stand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lamp stand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and branches shall all be of one piece with the lamp stand, hammered out of pure gold. Then make its seven lamps and set them 
up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick, trimmers, and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Thank you, Rosemary. So I, I was reading uh, an article that was discussing how the United States of America is one of the most overworked nations in the world, that compared to other industrialized nations, uh, we are just massively overworked. And in, in comparison, the amount of vacation uh, that we get, the number of sick, day, sick days that we get, uh, we spend a lot of time at work. And, it, and it's increased, of course, right? Um, it, it, at first, it was the men who were working in the workforce. Now it's men and women. Everybody's working, uh, doing a lot, getting a lot accomplished, uh, gone, busy, 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 lots of hours out working. And so because of that, because we are working so much, our, our time, right, our time's valuable. Our time is precious to us. And so it's important for us to, I think, ask this question from time and time again, is that after you go through your week and, and you've, you've been working hour after hour after hour, uh, Monday through Friday, maybe Monday through Saturday, whatever, um, and you come to Sunday and you've, you've only got a day, why should you spend some of it here? I mean, really, you don't have a lot of time, folks. I mean, I'm sure right now there's a billion things you're thinking of right now that you could be doing, perhaps should be doing in your mind. I mean, you don't have a lot of time here, so what, 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 why would we come here, right? What is the purpose of why we are here? Today we are continuing in our series on the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is about, well, it's about an exodus. It's about when God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, I just titled the series Exodus, being really creative, just taking the name of the series from the name of the book, because the book describes exactly what the book is about. It's about God bringing deliverance. And as we've seen as we've been going through this series, what the book of Exodus drives home for us is that God is a God of deliverance. That is what, when you think of God, I don't know what you think of, when the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of God, what the book of Exodus wants to sort of drive home for you is that God is a God of deliverance. He is a God of salvation, to use a, a churchier term. And what you get, actually, is in Genesis, it's the creator God, right? The beginning of, of Genesis is all about the God of creation. And here in Exodus, we really get this driven home. No, no, centrally, we, God wants us to view him as a God who brings deliverance. God brings deliverance. God brings deliverance from, into, and for. We looked about at this in the last couple of weeks. God delivers us from. God delivers us from whatever different challenge we might be facing. And, and that's what you need to know. God is there to deliver you from the challenges that you face. Now, the way he delivers you and when he will deliver you may not look the way you think it should look or might want it to look. But you need to know that God has that in mind. Whatever your challenges may be, whether it's relational difficulties that you're facing, whether it's financial difficulties that you are facing, whether it's, the truth is, whether it's problems with your own behavior, 
In fact, actually, as we move through the Bible, we discover that's what God is the most concerned about because all of the other problems in our world ultimately flow out of the way people behave and then the way that we behave, the way you behave, and the way I behave. So, so he ultimately wants to deliver us from our sin so that we can begin to live in a way that will bring human flourishment. But the point here is that God is a God of deliverance. He delivers us from, into, and for. He delivers us from, and he delivers us for. We'll go to four. We saw that he delivers us for a purpose. We've seen that when God delivers us from whatever it is, um, it's not actually even for you or for me. When he delivers you, it's not ultimately for you. It's so that you can be a four, right? So he, he delivers you for a purpose. It's not just, oh, God delivered me. Praise the Lord. God helped me out. Praise the Lord. It's not just that. It's God delivered me for a purpose. We saw that the people of Israel stuck in Egypt, stuck in slavery in Egypt, and God delivers them from Egypt. And why does he deliver them from Egypt? We saw if you take a step back and you look at the story of the Bible in its, in its entirety, what you discover is that he didn't just deliver them just for them. He delivered them so that they had a purpose for a purpose. God delivered them that they might be the means through which renewal comes into this world. We saw that after he delivers them from slavery in Egypt, then he gives them the Ten Commandments, which are his blueprints for beautiful community that the people of Israel were then called after being delivered to demonstrate to the world what beautiful community looks like. And so we're we're delivered from something, we're delivered for something, But what we also saw is that what sits right in the middle of that is this. You're delivered from, you're delivered for, but you're delivered into. You're delivered into the presence of God. God's not just delivering you from something. He's not just delivering you for something. He's delivering you into something. He wants to deliver you into his very presence. And when we come to this passage here in Exodus, and then really the next 15 chapters or so, it's about being in the presence of God. The, the construction of the tabernacle, this tent that God instructs them to build, it, it was built so that there was a place where they could encounter God. We see this in verse 8, right? This just kind of sums up what the next almost 15 chapters are really all about. So he tells them to collect all of these materials, asks the people to give of their own resources uh, for a construction project, and then it says this, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. God is, wants them to build this place so that they can encounter him and meet with him, right? And so what we need to see in the similar sort of sense, that's why we are here. We are here to encounter the presence of God. We are here to enter into the presence of God. I don't know why uh, you come. Maybe you come because you like the coffee. Uh, Maybe you come because you like the free bread that you can sometimes get uh, at the end of the service. Uh, Maybe you come because you've got some great friends. Uh, I I don't know. But, But my hope is that whatever is the reason you're coming here, increasingly you'll find, boy, I'm coming here to meet with God. I I need God in my life. I I need to meet with him. My my question for you is, when you come here, do you come with that expectation 
that you're going to encounter God. When you get up Sunday morning and you brush your teeth, when you get up Sunday morning and you make yourself breakfast, make yourself coffee, get yourself dressed, are you, are you coming with this expectation that I'm going to meet with God? That's what I hope would be the expectation that would increasingly grow in each of us. Now, the question here is, <clears throat> what happens when we encounter God? What happens when we encounter God? What, what, what happens when we gather together for worship, what is it that we are after in this encounter with God? There are a lot of different ways in which we could unpack this, but I'm going to put it this way. When we encounter God through worship, when we gather here together, when we encounter God through worship, it does this. It reminds us, it shapes us, and it sustains us. It reminds us, it shapes us, and it sustains us. First of all, it reminds us. Everything that we're doing here through the music, uh, through the preaching, um, through whatever activities we sort of engage in here, it's here, to, it's here to remind us. It's here to remind us of what really matters. When we gather here, the, the purpose of the music and the purpose of the preaching, it's here in part to remind us of what really matters. And the key word in this is this, remind. The key word is remind. And, and here's why I say this, and I say this all the time, and I'll just let the cat out of the bag. Most of you already know this. I say the same thing every week. I do. I say the same thing every week. I mean, I, find, I try to find different ways of saying it, try to package it in a, in a different way, use different imagery, maybe apply it in our lives a little bit differently. But I say the same thing every week, and I don't apologize for it. I came to realize, it's very freeing as I became a pastor, when I realized, you know, you really don't have to say something new every week. In fact, if you do say something new every week, you're probably a heretic, right? I mean, it's like if I say something you haven't heard before, I'm probably saying something unbiblical, right? So I'm better off, you know, keeping to what you know. We're not here to tell you something you don't already know. I was going to say this. uh, Frank... uh, electric guitar player here. I can talk about him now because he left. He had to go get an emergency. So I'll talk about him even more freely. But, but Frank, uh, Frank actually might be, uh, he might even be preaching for me next week if Laura has the baby in the next uh, couple of days. Uh, but, but Frank, he and I went to seminary together. We went to school together. Frank has taught courses in biblical studies at the college level, <clears throat> Okay. And Frank very frequently will come up to me after a service and say, thank you so much, that really, that really spoke to me, right? Here's what I know. Everything that I'm saying, Frank knows it. I mean, he's preached it. He's taught it. Again, if I say something that Frank doesn't know, I'm probably being a heretic. What's going on there is that I'm here to remind us. Put it a different way, church is not like going to school. It's not like that. Uh, <clears throat> my niece, Cal, uh, she just recently started college at the University of Wyoming, my alma mater, and, uh, right, give it up, no, okay, uh, so, thanks for the love, I appreciate it, uh, so my niece start, just started college at the University of Wyoming, and she is 11 years older to the day, 11 years older than my daughter, Grace, and so, uh, Cal, oh, see, Grace is going, Grace just started second grade, and 
Cal just started 13th grade is really what it would be. She's a, a freshman in college. And here's the thing. If Cal up came to Miss Dowd's class, that's Gracie's teacher, Miss Dowd, and if she came and sat in on one of Gracie's class, she would probably be bored out of her mind. Right? You know, um, okay, you've got three trucks, and Jimmy gives two more trucks to Bobby. How many trucks does Bobby now have? It's great, right? But probably Cal is probably going to get a little bit bored with this after a while. Now, if, if Gracie went to one of Cal's classes at the University of Wyoming, she would also be bored out of her mind, right? Because it would just completely go over her head, right? Because there's this progression, right? Here's what I'm, here's what I'm getting at here. Whether you have been coming to church here every Sunday for 50 years or this is your first Sunday here, you need to hear the same thing. That's what I've come to discover. You need to hear the same thing, maybe packaged a different way, applied a different way. We need the same thing. In this sense, coming to church is a whole lot more like going to a hospital than it is like going to school. It's like getting ointment put on your soul. And, and, and so maybe when you first come, you've just got scars everywhere. And so there's ointment that needs to be put on. And maybe if you've been here for many, many years and you've had that ointment applied to you, maybe there are less scars, fewer scars, but you need the same ointment. And the truth is, even as you go through life and you get ointment on those scars, more injuries come. Life happens, and so you need more ointment. But it's the same thing. We say the same thing. That's why we sing the same songs, right? I mean, holy, 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 I don't know how many years that song has been sung. That's why it doesn't, that one doesn't get old. It, it's because it's not here to teach us something new. It's here to remind us of what we already know. And we need to be reminded, and here's why. We need to be reminded of what really matters because isn't it true that it is very, very easy to get distracted? It is very, very easy to get distracted. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. This from a few years ago. <coughs> um, so my kids, they were getting scared at night. It, it, it was dark. They were scared of the dark in their room. Going to sleep at night was tough. So we bought, or we bought this little ladybug, or maybe somebody gave us the ladybug. Maybe one of you did. If you did, I'm sorry that I'm forgetting that you gave this to us. But it gave us this little, like, plastic ladybug that when you plug it in, it shines these lights up, um, and it, it, it kind of turns your room into a planetarium, right? So there's, like, stars, you know, kind of all over, and, and there's a half moon, this cute little half moon. And depending on which way you position the ladybug, the half moon will, can go on any wall, any, you know, wherever you want. And so you're like, oh, this is so great. Our kids are going to love this. They're not going to be getting scared. There's going to be light. They're going to see the stars. And, and here's, here's what happened. They started to fight over who got to sleep under the moon. And I'm, I'm trying to put them to bed. And, and, you know, they've gone from fear to anger. They're just angry. I, I want to sleep under the moon. I want to sleep under the moon. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, and I'm like, kids, does it really matter who gets to sleep under the moon? And so then, then I'd, you know, I'd come out of the room. And I'm like, oh, I'm so frustrated. And I'm telling Laura. I'm like, they just don't seem to get it. I don't know why they're so frustrated that, you know, it doesn't matter who sleeps under the moon. And, and, and my wife would be like, look, Kevin, listen, does it really matter that they don't realize that it doesn't really matter who sleeps under the moon. 
And then she'd get frustrated. Like, my husband, man, he just gets frustrated over stuff. And then she'd go talk with, you know, one of her friends would take her out for coffee. And her friend would be like, you know, how are things at home? She's like, oh, my gosh, Kevin just, he keeps getting frustrated because the kids keep getting frustrated over who gets to sleep, you know, underneath the moon. And then, and then Laura's friend would say to her, Laura, does it really matter that Kevin doesn't realize that it doesn't really matter that the kids don't realize that it doesn't really matter who gets to sleep under the moon? We get distracted so easily. And so when we gather together on Sunday morning, we're here to remind ourselves of what really matters. And what is that? Well, this passage shows us what really matters. God is what really matters. That challenge that you have at work, that promotion you didn't get, does it really matter? That financial challenge that just kind of came out of nowhere, does it really matter? Not that it doesn't matter. I'm not saying these things are unimportant, but, but in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter? Because what this passage reminds us is that God is what really matters. The tabernacle is built, it's designed to show that God is what matters. And that's why I had Rosemary read the entire, you're like, why? Oh my goodness, this is the longest passage ever. Well, I could have made it longer because this thing goes for chapters and chapters. And you read through the Bible, it's so crazy. You read through the Bible and it's like, in a couple of verses, several hundred years will go by. It's just 100 years, 100 years, 100 years. And then you get to here, and for like almost 15 chapters, it's detail after detail after detail of how to build this tabernacle. And the reason why all of that there is to drive home God is what really matters. The tabernacle is built in a way to drive home the idea The God is what really matters. The ark that is in the center of the tabernacle and has the cherubim, these angels facing each other. This is seen as God's throne, that he is a king. The the colors of the fabric that that are used, the blue and the purple, these are used to drive home God's divinity and his royalty, to sort of inspire sort of reverence and awe, the precious metals that are used, the bronze, the silver, and gold. We discover later on, as you look at the construction of the tabernacle, that the, uh, the materials were used with the greatest valued material, gold, being in the center, and then silver, and then bronze. And so on the outside, the things were virtually made of bronze, and then as you'd move in closer to the Holy of Holies, it's made of silver, and then as you move all the way into the center, there's all this gold. And it's a way of saying, it's a way of communicating, it's a way of reminding us how valuable God is. That God is what really matters. When we gather together here, we're to remind ourselves that God really matters. That's what the tabernacle did. It reminded them that God really matters. And it also reminded them that the story matters. It reminded them that the story of God remembers. What's interesting is when, if you look at the tabernacle and you look at how it's designed, 
Scholars agree that it's designed to point them back to the Garden of Eden. That in the Garden of Eden, the entrance to the garden was on the east. And in the tabernacle, the entrance is on the east. Uh, You discover that in the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was in the middle, in the center. And in the tabernacle, the Ten Commandments, the true knowledge of good and evil sits in the middle of the tabernacle. The the lampstands, these lampstands, they are there to evoke uh, the tree of life, the garden, right? This this life that is present. So Aaron's uh, Aaron's rod, uh, uh, actually, later on in elsewhere in Scripture, you discover that Aaron's rod was placed either in front of or inside the ark, and that was there to remind them of the story, right? So you've got creation, the Garden of Eden, but then you've also got the deliverance, after the fall, the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, Aaron's staff, the very staff that turned into a snake in front of the, of the, the magicians of Egypt, and it was there to remind them of that, to remind them of the story. The Ten Commandments, again, in the center, reminding them of the story of God coming and creating a covenant with them. And so when we gather together here, we're here to remind ourselves of God, What remind ourselves of the story of God. And, and of course, for us, it's a little bit different. We're farther along in the story, so the way in which we approach this is a little bit different. Uh, so, for example, a lot of the of what goes on in the temple is discussions of animal sacrifice and how to do animal sacrifice. And of course, we know farther along in the story that all of those sacrifices ultimately pointed to the coming of Christ, the coming of the one who really could uh, absorb the weight of our sin that, as it says in the book of Hebrews, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, that, that that was symbolic and it was pointing to what was coming with the Messiah. So when, of course, For us, it's a little bit different, but the basic principle is still the same there. We're here to sort of retell the story of God, the music, the sermon, communion. These are all things that point us to the story of God. I just had a a meeting with Craig and Suzanne and Carol Thies, and Carol Thies has done our seasonal decorations uh, over the last couple of years, and we're looking to kind of reinvigorate our seasonal decorations. And what I mean by that is that in the life of the church, historically there are these seasons, sometimes called the liturgical calendar. And actually the, the seasons of the church, what they do is they just tell the story of Jesus. That's what it is. You're reliving the story of Jesus. In the liturgical calendar, it starts with Advent this season of longing and waiting and sort of reliving the people of Israel longing and waiting for the Messiah to come. And then Christmas, the celebration of God coming into this world, Emmanuel, God with us. And so then, okay, so now we've got Jesus born. And then actually, if you're really high church, you go into the next season called Epiphany. And Epiphany is this season. Epiphany is a word that means to manifest. And it's a season in which we sort of emphasize and look at the way in which Christ manifested the glory of God throughout his ministry. So you look at the earthly life of Jesus. Uh, this, we're actually going to do a series based on the teachings of Jesus after Christmas, just kind of focus on how Jesus manifested the glory of God through his life. And then you come to the season of Lent, 
And this is a season in which we then focus on how Jesus surrendered himself to the will of his heavenly Father, surrendered himself for us, gave his life for us, and that's then a season for us to reflect on our own lives, to surrender as Jesus did as well. Lent is a season of surrender and confession. And then that all leads up to Easter. Easter, Jesus' resurrection, and then that whole season is celebrating the life that came through Jesus. And so these, these seasons in the church calendar are designed to simply retell the story, remind us of the story that really matters. What are we doing when we gather here? We are here to be reminded, but also to be shaped. To be reminded of the greatness of God, reminded of the story of God, but not just reminded, but also shaped. You see, it's not enough just to be reminded. James K.A. Smith is a philosopher at Calvin College, and and he he identifies something that really just goes right back to the scriptures. I'll, I'll bring that in here in a moment. And that is that we are not primarily thinking creatures. There's sort of this, since in the modern period, there's sort of been this attitude, but, well, you just need to change the way people think, change the way people think, change the way people think. It goes back to Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. In other words, the fundamental characteristic of me as a person is that I think. So if you want to change the person, change the way they think. Actually, what's beginning to happen in anthropology these days, in sociology, is they're realizing, actually, that's not that simple. That we are even more fundamentally than more fundamental than thinking, we are desiring creatures. That what we love is actually more central than even what we think. What we love. And we should actually be surprised by this. Because if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, here's what it says. The greatest commandment. The greatest commandment, right? What is it? Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart soul, and strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Now, some of you might be thinking, I thought, Kevin, I thought that it said love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, interestingly enough, the word mind isn't introduced until the Gospels, isn't introduced until the New Testament, and that's because the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek language was a language that was shaped by Greek thought, which really separated the mind from the heart, separated out drew a distinction that actually isn't there in the Hebrew Scriptures. What you find in the Hebrew Scriptures is that distinction between mind and heart is, is not nearly as separated, and in fact, it's, the, in fact, it's often been said that, that in the ancient world, the Romans cared about what you do, the Greeks cared about what you think, and the Jews cared about what you love. And that's what we find in the Hebrew Scriptures, that who we are at our core is what we love. So another way of putting this here is that you are pulled away from God more through your desires than through what you think. Let me me use this as an illustration to get what I'm getting at here. I'll put it this way. I would say that probably more people have lost their faith going to the mall than going to college. In In our culture, there's sort of in Christian circles, there's this sort of fear a little bit um, of higher education, and, and if you send your kids to college, what are they going to learn? And 
you know, they'll, they'll run into some atheist philosopher who's going to prove to them that God doesn't exist, right? This is the kind of thing, and you worry about this, and, and, and this is a legitimate fear. I get this, and this is why, as Christians, we have to keep working on a robust intellectual presentation of the faith. That's important. We've got to work at those things and demonstrate to people and teach people that the faith is intellectually credible. So that, that's, that's important. Um, but I would actually say that, that, that it's, what's more dangerous than your kid going to college is going to the mall. And here's why. Because if you lose your faith at college, at least you know you did. If you lose your faith at college, at least you know you did. Because, because you, it's, all, it's all in the mind, right? So you're like, Jesus is Lord, and my professor says God doesn't exist. Okay, all right, well, then I, 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 my teacher has convinced me uh, God doesn't exist. Jesus, they, they don't go hand in hand. So I guess then I, I don't, you get that. Like, it makes sense. I've, I've walked away. But here's the thing. If I go to the mall, these two things aren't, don't seem to be in sort of mental conflict. Here's what I mean. I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I believe it would be awesome to have the new uh, uh, Mac watch. I mean, that would, I believe that would be amazing if I could have that. Like, those aren't in conflict. Yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord, and I'd really love to have the new watch. I believe Jesus is Lord, and I'd really love to have those new jeans that are on sale at Nordstrom's. Those aren't in conflict mentally, but listen, if faith is about what you love, well, I mean, do you really love God more than what you can get at the mall? Do you really love God more than what you can accomplish through your career? You see, (laughs) you might think you still, you believe, but you lost your faith a long time ago. Because it's about what you love. James K. Smith says this in one of his books about this very thing. He talks about the reality is, is that the mall is a lot like a, a place of worship. It's very similar. In fact, that it works on your heart the same way, as he puts it, a medieval cathedral would. He draws the comparisons between uh, a a modern-day mall and a medieval cathedral. And he talks about how, look, they're, they're very similar. So you go to Italy, and you go to these unbelievably beautiful medieval cathedrals, and they're actually a lot like malls. <laughs> so you've got a huge open space, right? And then in a, in a cathedral, you've got these little chapels, little, little places that are sometimes designated to different saints. And depending on what you ha- happen to need, you'd go to that little chapel, and you'd pray to that saint, and then hopefully get whatever you needed. And in the mall, you've got this huge open space, and then you've got these little stores. And depending on what you need, you go to the different store, right? And so if you're in the cathedral, you go to the cathedral, and you, you, you give your prayers up to the saint. And, and at, the, at the mall, you go to the stores, and you give them your credit card, and you pay for what you're going to get. On one hand, you have the power of prayer. On the other hand, you have the power of purchase. And, and in the mall, and, and in the, we'll start with the sanctuary, in the medieval cathedral, you've got these uh, beautiful stained glass windows, and they're usually stained glass windows that communicate a part of the story, right? So a part of the story. Maybe you'll have a, uh, a stained glass window that is a picture of David and Goliath, or maybe you'll have a, a stained glass window of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And as you go into that, it kind of works on you, and, and, in, in, and I should be more courageous like David, and I should, I should serve people more like Jesus, or you've got these images that are up there. And the same thing's true when you go to the mall. 
you walk into the mall and, and you don't have stained glass windows. You've got these huge posters with these often, they're often celebrities, these beautiful people wearing the clothes that you can buy. And what it's doing is it's giving you a rival story. It's saying this story can be your story. You've got this celebrity, and you kind of, it would be kind of nice if you could have that person's life. All I've got to do is wear the same jeans. Now, that isn't happening mentally, you see. It's going on in your heart, but you're being shaped by that over and over again. You see, it's not just a matter when it comes to what we love, it's a matter when it comes to being shaped, it's not just about convincing you, it's about making an impression. And what the tabernacle did is it made an impression. You didn't just walk into the tabernacle and there was a sign that said, God is holy. You walk into the tabernacle and you see gold. You walk into the tabernacle and you see these fabrics that represent divinity and royalty and it makes an impression on you. Right? You, you, you walk into H&M and it doesn't, there's no sign that says cool people wear these clothes. There's just a cool person wearing those clothes. And it has an impression on you, you don't even realize that it's going on. And listen, th- listen, when, what we're doing here, this is why when we get together, I'm not here just to convince you. We're here, what we're trying to do for all of us is we want the glory of God to be impressed upon us. That's why we use things like music. Because music can, can get at the heart in a way that just simply telling you the truths of Scripture can't. That's where things like communion can be helpful, the imagery of of communion. That's why when we do the seasonal decorations, we try to use artistry, right? We're using a Carol Thies is going to come in and help, and she she has a great artistic eye for things, and and we're going to put this tree up that's going to change colors throughout the seasons, and it's going to, the hope there is that the beauty of what we have going on here will leave an impression on you. It'll write the story of God on your heart, the story of Advent, the story of Christmas, the story of Lent, the story of God's resurrection, that through our music, through our preaching, and even through the imagery, we sort of relive this story as it shapes our heart. And what happens is when you start to get shaped by that, shaped by that story, then you start to live according to that story. You see, here's the thing. We're, we're all actors. Did you know that? We're all actors, and we all play according to a script. We play according to a script because we have a story that we envision. Sometimes it's not even, we don't realize we're living according to this story. But like the story for you might be, you know what the end of the story looks like. The end of the story is you looking exactly like the picture of that person in the mall. It's you being able to afford the right clothes. It's you looking a certain way. It's you having gotten to this point where you sort of see every single picture that you see at the mall is telling a story and is inviting you to make that story your story. Right? I, I mean, again, I can go back here and talk about how the mall is a lot like a sanctuary. Many of you know J.D., done. Uh, he was a member here for a while, and he recently moved, and he worked for, or works for, Coach, right? The purses, right? And um, his official title is the Vice President of, of Outlet Malls for Coach. And I jokingly used to refer to him as the High Priest of Outlet Malls. 
Because it's all inviting you into a story of love and worship. And the question is, which story are you really living in? If you live according to that story, you're going to follow a different set of commandments. When you are invited into the story of God, the script is the Ten Commandments. And now you're just living that because that's the story that you are now in. So when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we're here using all of the different uh, element, aesthetic elements of worship with the goal of shaping us and allowing ourselves to become a part of the story of God. So worship reminds us, it shapes us, and finally, worship sustains us. What I mean by that is worship sustains us when we allow God to work in us. It's getting back to what I said at the very beginning. At the heart of what worship is, is encountering God. Everything else flows out of that. The, the reminding and the shaping all flows out of God then beginning to dwell within us. And as God dwells within us, not only are we reminded and shaped, but we are also sustained. And, and this is why it's so important for us to be sustained. If I can just sort of use this imagery. Isn't it true that life in many ways, you will find yourself consistently throughout life, it'll feel like you are drowning. How many of us, you go through life and you just come to this point, maybe frequently, where you just feel like you're drowning? It's just like Monday morning. Monday morning, you get up and you dive in. And all week, you're swimming underwater and you're navigating crevices and you're running from sharks and stingrays. But sometimes there's beautiful things down there, you know, like when you, you go snorkel, beautiful coral reef, and oh, right, so life's going well. Under, it's beautiful, but then the shark comes. And, and even when things are going well, there comes this point when you've got to come up for air. You've got to take a, a, a breath because actually <laughs> you can't live underwater by yourself. You can't. Make it underwater by yourself. I use this imagery, if I can take this a step further, because in some respects, the way the Bible paints our world is that it is underwater. Spiritually, our world is underwater. Water is used in a number of different ways in the Bible, the imagery of water. Sometimes water is used to, well, to talk about quenching your thirst, right? So God is water that quenches your thirst. Interestingly enough, a lot of times, it's the complete opposite. And water is actually used to represent the absence of God. So in the beginning of the creation story, it, it talks about how the Spirit hovered over the waters. And when it says that, it's saying that it, everything was in a state of chaos. And the creation story talks about God receding the waters and land emerging. And this is a way of communicating that God, God's presence is now there. And as God's presence is there, the waters, which represent chaos, begin to recede. This is why in the book of Revelation, it says the sea will be no more. What it's getting at is God will be fully present and the absence of the presence of God will be gone. And so in the Bible, there's sort of this imagery of water representing the absence of the presence of God. And in many respects, as we go through life, this is what we experience. Day in and day out, we can only go so long, and you have to come up for air. 
Friends, my hope is that increasingly that's what this will become to you. You go through your week and you come here and you, you've got to breathe. I, I think that the reality is if you've been going to church for a while, you can start to take it for granted like we take breathing for granted. And when you've just been breathing and breathing, you, you just kind of forget about it, right? <clears throat> but the I, 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 story of a friend of mine who had his tonsils removed, and after they removed the tonsils, he was lying in bed recovering, and he had some sort of a reaction. And his lungs started, or his throat started to close, and very quickly, and really, he started to realize he couldn't breathe, he was choking, he managed to get over his phone and dial 911, and they managed to get there. By the time they got, he was, he was blue, but they did manage to, you know, give him something that allowed him to breathe. And, and my guess is that after that experience, he doesn't take breathing for granted. I think this is why for so many people, when they go through a really tough challenge and they turn to God, that's when they don't take him for granted anymore. Sometimes I think that's why new believers have an excitement that sometimes some of us who have been Christians for many years don't have. We've just gotten so used to breathing in the goodness of God. So my encouragement to you is don't, don't take that for granted. And come here recognizing that this is a place where you can be sustained. Why are we here? Why do we come here? You're all busy people. You're overworked. Most overworked nation in the industrialized world. Why would you spend time coming here? And and my prayer is that increasingly you will come here to encounter God. Increasingly you will come here so that you can be reminded of what really matters the greatness of God and the story of God, reminded of that, shaped by that, and sustained by that. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you. God, we praise you that we, we can come to know you. God, I pray that this morning our hearts and our minds would be reoriented towards what really matters. God, that we might (coughs) be convicted of the rival stories that we are living in. God, allow us to be shaped by your story. Allow that to become our story. God, allow us to find the freedom that rests in that. God, I just pray for a peace that would come over us as we gather together to worship a peace that is like air to lungs that have gone without air. God, may this be a place where we really come to encounter you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.